Jesus Christ is so much of what this series that we've covered is all about. The, the idea of the gift of love, God's love poured out into our hearts through the gospel, and then God's love demonstrated through us to others. Over the last number of weeks, we've looked at this love in, in what's called the household codes. We've looked at husbands and wives. We've looked at children and parents. And now today we look at maybe a topic that seems a little disconnected from our world today. The topic in the text is slaves and masters. And we might think, well, we, we don't have slaves. How does this impact us? Well, today I want us to remember that this slaves and masters was part of the way that households would work in the early centuries. And... I want us to learn how to bridge the gap between the, the first century and our 21st century and learn how to apply this text today. So as you remain standing, let me read this text for you as we finish this series. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The text, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with, with good will to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop being threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Well, we'll stop right there. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, this topic is a topic that might be a bit controversial. In fact, this is, a, this is a, a, the kind of text that has recently been in the news. If you follow the news very closely at all, earlier this month, the, the coach of Texas Tech, his name is Mark Adams. Maybe you heard of this. He was coaching one of his players, a basketball coach. He was coaching one of his players, and he used, I'm not sure exactly what passage of Scripture, but he used a very similar passage as he was coaching one of his players. And this player, this player was a player who took offense by it. In fact, the player took offense and complained. The coach was suspended, and ultimately the coach, he resigned. He, he resigned. He, he lost his job by coaching using a, a passage like this in the Bible. You see, the, the, the problem is, is, is we read this text, and we read it about slaves and masters, and we automatically think about well, slavery in America's history, which, which is a terrible history. Uh, terrible things were done. And so we read this text and we automatically think this is a text about race. But that's actually not the point of this text at all. The point of this text, what we're going to see, this is really a text just like when it talks about husbands and wives and just like when the scripture talks about parents and children. This is a text that is meant to help us understand how to operate in, in relationship with authority. This is not meant to be a text that we need to trip over. Rather, this is to be a text where we learn how to faithfully follow Christ. And so, so that said, I, I want us to kind of lean into this. And we're going to handle this idea of slavery from a few different angles. And ultimately, I think this is going to be something very helpful for you. But my big idea today, what, what I'm hoping that you leave with, with clarity in your mind and even conviction in your heart, what we're going to see is that your social status, whether you're, uh, I don't know, a CEO or a janitor, 
Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a child or an adult, maybe, maybe you're wealthy or poor, maybe you're highly intellectual or maybe not so much, that your social status, regardless of what it is, it should show your spiritual status. This is what I want you to see in this text today. In fact, this is what this text is leading us to understand. And now, let me set it up for you by asking you this. Do you sometimes use your life situation as an excuse not to be faithful to the Lord? Here's what it sounds like. Well, you know, I, I work for a, a guy that he's an atheist and he really doesn't honor God at all. And, and you know what? Because, because he's such a, a, a terrible supervisor to work for, you know what? I really don't have to be very faithful at work. I can kind of cut some corners and I can kind of cheat out a little bit here and there. Or maybe it looks something like this. Well, you know, I just, I, I, I don't make very much money and we're kind of like barely scraping by. And so because of that, I don't have to be very ethical in the way I, I operate in, in the work situation or when I operate with certain people. I can kind of, maybe I can kind of maybe get the most out of people instead of serving them or caring for them. I, I can kind of cut the corners because, well, my life just isn't as good as someone else's. I think we're all really good at making those kind of excuses. We can all identify whether it's an economical or a relational issue in our lives. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's part of our family history. There's something going on in our life we can all grab onto, and we can use that as an excuse to be less than faithful, especially in the work environment. I want to hopefully help us see that those excuses really are, they're invalid entirely today whether you're someone who's the, the boss or maybe someone who reports to the boss, I want us to see that the issue isn't our work environment. The issue is not our social setting or our social status or our social station. The issue is the call of Christ upon our life because of who he is and what he has done. Now, I want us to answer that question. Are there places where we make excuses? But I also, I kind of am preaching two sermons today. I also want to help us handle a text like this. Where you might read this and you might say, well, there's not really slaves and masters in my world today, so this text doesn't even apply to me at all. I want you to see how you can bridge the first century all the way to the 21st century in the way you read and apply the scripture. So with that said, will you open up your Bible with me? Will you open up to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5? And, and I have, my, my big idea is that your social status should show your spiritual status. But under that, we, we have two main issues we want to deal with. We want to deal with slaves, what the text calls slaves, and we want to deal with masters. And to do that, what I want to do today is I want to give you some, some main points, but I want to give it to you in the, in the context of the ancient world and then in the context of the modern world, both slaves and masters. So, so let's start. The text begins with slaves, and so let's start with the ancient world. If you were in Ephesus, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter and sent this to your church, if you were in Ephesus and you were a slave, this letter would be for you. Part of it would be for you. And the point here, then, in the ancient world is that slaves obey masters as a testimony to Christ. This is where the text is aiming those in the first century who were slaves. Look at the text, verses 5 through 7. It says, bond servants. This is literally the word slaves. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Here's where our text begins. And it uses, in the English Standard Version, it uses the word bondservant. Now, this is really the word slave. Depending on your translation, your, your translation might say slave. Some translations say servant. And, and, and the reason why it's translated bondservant or servant is kind of to soften the blow. Especially in the 21st century American context, the moment we use the word slave, our mind is not informed by the first century world of Ephesus. Our mind is formed and it's filled with America's history. But I want us to see that slavery, it, it was a reality in the New Testament. Slavery was a reality in the New Testament. Many people were slaves in the New Testament for multiple of different reasons. Some were slaves because they were captured probably by the Romans. And they were enslaved. They were, they, were, they were captured in war. They were captured in conquest. And then they were enslaved. All of their rights were taken away. And they, were just, they entered into slavery. Others, they found themselves in slavery because they were impoverished. They didn't have money. They didn't have a way to provide for themselves. And so people would sell themselves into slavery so that they could be provided for. The idea was it would be better to be a slave and eat than not have anything to eat and to starve. And in the New Testament, this was not a slavery based on skin color. This was not a racially divided slavery. This was a slavery based on convenience and based on war. And, and here's the deal. Based upon the person who enslaved you, you could have very different experiences. If you had a cruel master, your slavery could be terrible. If you had a benevolent master, your experience of slavery could be quite pleasant, quite comfortable. See, there was so much variety when it came to slavery, but it was a reality in the New Testament. But, but it's not just a reality in, in the New Testament world. Slavery is actually something that the Lord God, he, directs, he directly addressed in the Old Testament. This, is my, this might change the way we think a little bit today. Let me share with you a couple of different passages. There was some slavery in the Old Testament that God actually said was good. There were other kinds of slavery in the Old Testament that God said was horrendous. Let me give you examples of both. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This isn't in your notes, but you can just jot this down. This is the Mosaic law describing how to deal with slaves. Here's what it says. Verse 12, it says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. Well, just pause just for a second. This is teaching that someone could, that they could be a slave for six years. It was not indefinite. It was not a lifetime. It was not, okay, you're a slave. You're always going to be a slave. There was a time limit on it. And I'm actually going to show you how this works. It says, verse 13, And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Look at this. This is probably something that most of us have never realized about Old Testament slavery. Someone was to be a slave, and it was less like you're a slave forever, and it was more 
it was more like almost an apprenticeship. Someone would be, they would hire themselves into slavery. They would work faithfully for their master for six years. And during those six years, their work would contribute to their master's wealth. And their master at the end of those six years would launch them into life with flock, with wealth, with, with food, with staples. This would really be a launching into a successful life. <laughs> A slave would be launched into adulthood and into a, a life of success much better than most of our four-year colleges launch kids these days. They, they would be launched into a life of success. The text goes on. Look at verse 16. But, but if he, the slave, says, I, I will not go out from you because, because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you should take an awl and you should put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And your female slave, you shall do the same. This is saying that there were some slaves that they enjoyed the protection, the care, and the comfort in their master's home so much so that they became like part of the family. They said, I don't want to go out. I don't want to try to build a life on my own. I, I want to continue to serve you. I have everything I need here. This was how God addressed one kind of slavery. This is a very positive kind of slavery. This is the kind of slavery that someone could launch into a life of success. This isn't the kind of slavery in America's history for the most part. God actually addresses that kind of slavery as well. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, says, whoever steals a man, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, here's the consequence, shall be put to death. This is a very different kind of slavery. This is the kind of slavery when someone comes and they take you, they take your life, they, they, they rob you of your freedom and your independence. They say, you are now owned by me, not because you want to be, not because it will benefit you economically, not because it will set you up to launch successfully into your own life, but I am going to take you and I'm going to use you. And God's justice is swift, severe, and clear. He, God does not tolerate that at all. Now, this is how the Bible speaks of slavery. In the New Testament, in, in the city of Ephesus, a, a city that was run by Roman law, it wasn't the Hebrew law that they ran by. This was the Roman law. This was the law of the land that allowed the kind of man-stealing. But, but I want us to think about this just over the course of history, every nation has had slaves. Every nation has had slavery as part of their history. But, but I want you to consider just for a moment before we move on, wh wh where are the nations that have abolished slavery? And what is it that works in the background of a nation that abolishes slavery? It's been the Western nations that have been influenced heavily by the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, see the, the transformative work of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change men and women, to change the way we think and the way we act, that ultimately has been the foundation of slavery being abolished throughout history. This is, this is helping us deal with this text. This text makes us realize that slavery has existed in the past, that God permitted some kind, and God, he punished other kind. This helps us give a, a, an understanding of the ancient world, but then this leads us to our modern world. 
Well, I look around this room and most of us, I, I don't think any of us are slaves or slave owners, right? Not in this sense. So what is the modern world equivalent? How do we, how do we bridge the, the, from the ancient world to the modern world? Well, in the modern world, instead of slaves, in the modern world, I would argue employees. Employees obey their employer as a testimony to Christ. Those who work under someone else, those who have a supervisor, you should obey your supervisor. You should obey your employee, and you should do it as a testimony to Christ. In the same exact way a slave would obey their slave master as a way of demonstrating that they have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, just like we just sang, right? So today in our world, in the, in the job that you find yourself in, in the place where you work, in the place where you find yourself having authority over you, you should obey them in such a way that it reflects Christ and his work in your life. See, this really is speaking to those who are Christians, who've had their life touched by Christ. Now, let's talk about this obedience, but before we get to that obedience, let's, let's think about this in, in that term, slave. Now, I want us to just pause here for a moment and remember that when this letter arrived at Ephesus, when this letter was read to the churches, they gathered in a home, probably a large home. They would gather in a large home, and this was read. And all of these different instructions have been read, right? We've talked about husbands and wives. We've talked about children and parents. Now we're talking about slaves and masters. But listen, all of those people, husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, masters, all of them addressed in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, all of them have already heard Ephesians 1 through 3. We have to remember that. This is, this is talking to those who would be, socially speaking, slaves. They might be slaves in an earthly sense, but this is speaking to those who, Ephesians 2, were dead in their trespasses and sins. This is speaking to those who were alienated from God and the commonwealth that's found in him. This is speaking to those who they stood condemned as disobedient to God and facing, facing God's wrath. But then just like, just like the slave masters, just like the free people, and just like you in this room, these slaves had been saved by grace through faith. Just like it says in Ephesians 2, they have been made alive together with Christ. They have been raised up with Christ and they have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is speaking and this is reminding us that the gospel applies to every single social setting. Can we just remember that for a moment? The gospel is not just for the wealthy and not for the poor. Jesus Christ, he's not just for men and not for women, not just for adults and not for children, not just for those that are college educated and, and not for those who aren't. Jesus and the gospel, it is the message of salvation that he died and in his death, the price for sin was paid, that he was resurrected and in his life, you are given new life. This is the free gift of salvation offered to everyone who is willing to believe, to believe in who Christ is. That, he's lo that he loves you and that he has done that for you. I just find this amazing in this text. This applied to the slave, the free person, and the master. And so it says, bond servants. And then it's going to teach them and command them to obey. But before we get there, I want us to consider the, the, the way they are called to obey. In fact, if you have your Bible open, I'm going to ask you to underline a few things. If you're someone who's willing to underline in your Bible, you're going to love this. If you're like, no way, my pen's not touching the Word of God, well, we gave you notes. You can underline in your notes, right? 
But, but I want you to underline a few of these phrases to see the, the way the obedience is meant to work. Let me read for you again. I'll make a few comments for what to under, underline. Verses five through seven. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly master. Here's the first underline. With fear and trembling. This is how we are to obey. With fear and trembling. Secondly, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Underline that whole phrase. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. This is the, the way, the manner, the obedience is meant to work. Verse 6, it says, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves or bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God. Here, underline these next three words. From the heart. Verse 7. Rendering service Last three words, to, or four words to underline, with a good will. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man. This text describes the responsibility of obedience, but it also describes the manner of obedience. It, it actually describes the kind of attitude that you and I are to carry into the workplace you see, what we, what we find here is that for the slaves, their faith is, is meant to determine their attitude. This means for you today, your faith as one who has been rescued by the gospel of Jesus Christ, as one who has been redeemed through the sacrificial work of Jesus and his death and resurrection, your faith determines your attitude. Faith determines attitude. And then the text describes what I'm going to break down is four kinds of attitudes that you should carry into any relationship where you have someone who is, have, has authority over you. Let's, let's look at them. The first one is a respectful attitude. Verse 5 says, with fear and trembling. Now, earlier we've seen this word fear, and it's been translated respect. Now, this can be translated respect or it can be translated fear based on the context. But again, go back to the, very, the first century, slave and master. Fear is actually the appropriate word here. Why? Because the master has complete authority over your life. You should have a respectful attitude for them, toward them because they could take your life. You should have fear and trembling. The word trembling means to quiver. This is the idea that you should, you should have an outward demonstration of your respect toward them. Let me ask you, in the workplace, does your supervisor, do they know you respect them? Do, do they, like, wonder, like, I wonder if they actually respect me? Does your supervisor, do they guess that your interactions with them are respectful, but the moment they turn their back, they assume you're probably talking bad about them? Do, do, does your supervisor know you respect them? A respectful attitude. Secondly, is a sincere attitude. Verse 5, with a sincere heart. Verse 6, from the heart. This sincerity is like a, a singleness of heart. This is the idea that there's, there's nothing hidden, there's no hidden meaning, that you have an openness of heart toward those who have authority over you. Uh, you, you could say this is a wholehearted attitude toward your supervisor, toward your authority. You have a respectful attitude. You have a sincere attitude. Uh, you have a worshipful attitude. Verse 5, back to verse 5, it says, as you would Christ. Actually, numerous times in the text, it talks about obeying as to the Lord or as to Christ. 
Now, this worshipful attitude doesn't mean when your supervisor comes in, you drop down on your knees and you bow to him. You're like, oh, hey, hey, boss. Uh, I'm happy to see you. No, no. This is, this is you obey them as an act of worship to Christ. You obey them knowing that, that you're really obeying Christ. See, what this reminds us of is that there is no authority that exists on this earth that has not been installed and instituted by Jesus Christ. Now, we're really quick in this moment to raise our hand and be like, well, what about this person? They're a terrible leader. What about this person? They're a terrible uh, whatever political position you want to put up, right? We're not going to get into that today. We'd have a little too much fun, right? But you, you want to raise your hand. You want to start complaining about politicians, or you want to raise your hand and start complaining about you know, the workplace environment. And you say, they're a terrible leader. They're a terrible authority. Well, all you have to do is read the Old Testament, and you will find that God regularly puts terrible authority in over his people as a way of getting their attention and sometimes as a way of disciplining them. You can complain about the authority all you want. All authority is instituted by Christ. And so the attitude we should have when we, when we obey or when we, we follow the authority in our life is one of worship, not to the authority, but a worship of Christ. Finally, the, the fourth kind of attitude is is a loyal attitude. Verse 7, it says, with a good will. This is a, a, a will that is good or loyal. It's zealous. It's enthusiastic. It's eager to do what pleases the one in authority above you. This is the kind of attitude you're to have. You're to have an attitude that is respectful, sincere, worshipful, and loyal. Now, I've shared this with this church before, but when I coach a baseball team, in fact, it's spring, baseball started, we're two weeks into coaching, my, my eight-year-old's playing uh, machine pitch again, I'm coaching his team, and every team that I've coached since Jaden was a young kid, right, we, we start our season, our very first practice, we get our kids together, and we say, hey, I'm Coach Mike, and this is how our team is going to work, and every team has always had the same exact motto. Some of you guys might remember this, right? Some of the kids in this team, in the room have played for me before. Maybe I should test you. Should I test you? No. Here's what it is. We get them together, and our team motto always is this. Attitude is everything. We, we teach the kids from the very first practice. The moment you walk onto the field, they say, maybe you've had a terrible day at school. Maybe you've had a really rough day with your family, but the moment you walk onto this field, your job, you are to have a great attitude. You're, at, you're to have a positive attitude because attitude is everything. That means that when you come on here because you have a good attitude, you don't walk. We, we don't walk on the baseball field. We jog, we hustle. We're always moving, right? That means when you get up to bat and you strike out, you don't throw your bat and complain and be like, oh, well, I'm terrible, right? You say, I'm gonna get it next time. I'm going to try, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing my best. This means if you make a bad throw or if coach tells you to go to the position you don't want to go to, you don't hang your shoulders and kick the dirt and pout. No, attitude is, let me hear you say it. Attitude is, now if this is true for an eight-year-old on the baseball field, this is infinitely more important and true for us as adults and teenagers who are called to have the kind of, this kind of attitude in the workplace. We are called to have this kind of attitude toward the authority in our life. 
I recognize our world teaches us the opposite. Our world teaches us that we're really the only authority, that what we think matters more than anyone that's above us, but this is not the way the Bible describes the Christian in authority relationships. Your attitude, it's everything. See, your faith determines your attitude. What you believe about who you are and what Christ has done, it determines the, the, the way you carry yourself about. But then what happens after that is your attitude determines your actions. Your attitude is meant to determine your actions. Look with me at verse 6, verses 5 through, or five through 7 again. And I'm not going to make you underline anything this time. I, I want you to circle things. So here we go, right? You might run out of ink in your pen. Circle these action words. I want us to see how this all connects. Verse 5, it begins. It says, bond servants, obey. Here it is, obey. Circle the word obey. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God. Circle that phrase, doing the will of God. Doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, circle these two words, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Did you catch those action words? See, if your faith determines your attitude, then your attitude determines your actions. And the Bible describes these are the kind of actions that should be evident in your life, specifically when it comes to those who are in authority above you. Look at these three action words. Let's look at one at a time. The first is obedient actions. Obedient actions. This word obey, we've seen it a number of times by now. We're getting used to this word. It doesn't have any hidden meaning. It's not a tricky word to understand. It simply means to do what someone else tells you to do, right? When we talked about this with parents, all the parents said, amen, to do what someone else tells you to do. This is how you are to obey in the workplace. This, this is the kind of obedience that's not, well, I'm going to obey if they tell me to do what I want to do. This is not the kind of obedience that I'm going to obey if I like the task given to me. This is I am going to obey, period. <laughs> I'm going to obey. Now, we, we have discussed the limits of that obedience. If your employer comes to you and they tell you to do something that is dishonoring toward God, well, you don't have to obey that. You obey God rather than man. If your employer comes to you and they tell you to do something that's harmful to you or to others, you don't have to obey that. And I'm not talking about the, uh, like, uh, I'm offended at everything, kind of like this is harmful, right? If they come and tell you you have to clean the toilet, you don't say, well, that's going to harm me, <laughs> right? That's not the kind of harm that we're talking. If they come and they tell you they want you to cut off your right hand, you say, well, I'm not going to obey that. But this is, this is an obedience that flows out of the right kind of attitude, the second action then is you have obedient action, and then secondly, you have faithful action. Look at verse 6. Faithful action that you see in verse 6. It says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. What is this idea of eye service and being a people pleaser? Well, for a number of years, I was, a, I was a manager of the produce department at Albertsons. 
for, for quite a few years. I, I managed the produce department. And typically, as the manager, I would work the morning shift. So going, you know, 5 a.m., get off about 2 o'clock. And, and I usually would have someone come in about 1 o'clock, and I would, I would line out the rest of their day. Here's all the things that I have for you to do. Here's your responsibilities. I laid out really clearly, and then I'd leave. And, uh, and I didn't live very far from the store. So every so often, I would, uh, I would decide, you know what? I think, I, you know, it's about 6 o'clock at night. I, I think I just need to swing by the store for, uh, I don't know, I, I think I need an apple, right? I really didn't eat an apple. And sometimes I would stroll into the produce department and I'd look around and I'd see things aren't done. I'd be like, where is so-and-so? Huh, I don't, I don't see them out on the floor doing their job. So I, I'd go into the back room and I'd find them. Sometimes I'd find them maybe even sitting down with their feet up. And it's amazing how quick they move in that moment. It's amazing. Once you walk in there, their, their eyes get like this big and the broom's like halfway across the room, but it's like in their hands like that. Like, oh, just clean it up back here, Mike, right? Like, what's happening in that moment? They're obeying by way of eye service. See, see this is when you do the right thing when someone's watching but as soon as your boss, their back is turned, as soon as you're beyond their vision, as soon as you can get away with slacking, it's exactly what you do. As believers, listen, that's not how we work. See, if, if our faith determines our attitude and our attitude determines our action, we should never be those who, who are working by way of eye service. We should never be those who are people pleasers. This is, this is the employee that they do the good job when you're there, but the moment you leave, they don't care. This is being a people pleaser. That's not our goal. We, we obey. We have these actions that are obedient, and then we have these actions that are faithful from the heart, regardless of whether or not our employer or our supervisor sees us. And then our third action is that we have humble actions. Verse 7, it says, rendering service. Now, service is... Service is humble. This is the kind of service where we do what is best for the person in authority over us, whether we like to or not. This makes me think about the, the customer service realm. Sometimes you have a customer that you really don't like. How do you treat them? Do you treat them in a way that honors Christ? Or do you treat them in a dismissive way? Or maybe an arrogant way? See, the service that we render is meant to be humble. It's as if we're serving the Lord. Now, this is, this is the trajectory. Your faith determines your attitude. Your attitude determines your actions. Let me just ask you, will you take a moment and do some self-evaluation? Do you have the right attitude when you go to work? Do you have the right attitude when you interact with someone who has authority over you? Do you have the right kind of obedience in the workplace? Is it the kind of obedience that reflects your, your service to Christ? But this, this kind of a, this formula doesn't end yet. We still have verse 8. Verse 8, we see that just like faith determines attitude and attitude determines actions, so then actions determine reward. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this. It says, knowing Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. I just want to sit on that word knowing for just a moment. That word knowing is a game changer. This says, this is the reason why you obey. 
This is the reason why you're obedient and faithful. This is the reason. It's not because you like your boss so much. It's not because your boss is such a stellar guy. The reason you obey is because you know the Lord will pay, pay you back. You, you, you realize that sometimes we start to think about heaven and we kind of flatten out heaven. We think about Jesus' words in John 14 where he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And we think, you know, it's going to be great, right? And we're all going to have the same exact size room and we're all going to have the same exact bed and we're all going to have the same meal and it's all going to be just this egalitarian world, like this, this heavenly Marxism where everyone gets exactly the same all the time. Do you realize the Bible doesn't teach that? The Bible teaches that your entrance into heaven is by grace through faith. There's no one here that can earn anything by way of salvation at all. But, but multiple times in the scripture, it describes this very thing. Look at verse 8 again. It says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. I want you to recognize there were slaves in the first century who were Christians who served faithfully, and they didn't get one ounce of goodness in their lifetime. Is God unfaithful to his word? No. In their lifetime, they didn't receive it back. But in eternity, they will. Uh, you, you realize the Bible describes judgment in multiple ways. There's a judgment for all of humanity when we will either enter into eternity with God or an eternity outside of God in hell. And that is, an, that is a judgment that is based solely upon how we've trusted Christ or not. But do you realize additionally, every single believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 describes this very thing, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the, the bema, the judgment. This is a different word for judgment. We must all, every Christian, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You one day will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ Hebrews chapter 4 describes the same thing, starting in verse 12. It says, for, for the word of God, you, you've heard this before, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of a heart. This is what the word of God does. It says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it goes right into the very core of who you are, and it splits you right open, and it shows the very core of your thoughts and your intentions. And we usually stop right there, but look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his, from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him. Here it is. The eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is going to come a day where you stand before God Almighty and you give an account for the entirety of your life. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we will receive what we deserve, whether for good or evil. This is, this is the idea of reward in heaven. It's, it's not you're going to go to heaven, but it's the reward in heaven. 
For, for the good you do as you serve the Lord, there will be reward for you. And then for the evil you've done, I don't think there will be punishment. I think there will be a loss of reward. You'll miss out on it. See, when we have this, this flattening view of heaven, this heavenly Marxism, where we think it's all going to be everything gets every, everyone gets everything the same, here's the result in our world. We end up saying, well, I really don't have to serve the Lord that much. I can pursue all of my different hobbies and all of my different pleasures in this world. I don't really have to give myself to the work of the service. I don't have to pour myself into ministry. I don't really have to share the gospel. I mean, you know what? We're all going to end up in heaven. It's all going to be flat. And That's not the picture of the scripture. That's not the picture at all. This is why verse 8 says, it says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. I hope this lights a fire under us. I hope this reminds us, listen, listen, your life matters. It matters for all of eternity. The things that we do as believers are not worthless, meaningless. We're just passing in the wind. The things that we do here on earth, they have eternal significance. So we should be giving ourselves to the work of the ministry. We should be giving ourselves to faithfulness at our place of work. We should be, especially those who answer to others, who are under others' authority, we should obey and respect them as we obey and respect the Lord. We should live as a testimony to Christ. This is the first this is the first instruction for our text. In the ancient world, slaves obeyed masters as a testimony to Christ. In our modern world, employees, we obey our supervisors or our authority as a testimony to Christ. But let's finish this text with verse 9. Verse 9, let's start with the ancient world. What we're going to see is the ancient world, it talks to masters. In the ancient world, masters were to treat their slaves well as a testimony to Christ. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is the ancient world. Masters, how do you treat your slaves? Well, what about our modern world? For our modern world, employers... Treat employees well as a testimony to Christ. If you're in this room and you have authority over anyone in any kind of way, this is for you. Whether you're the, the owner of a company, whether you're the supervisor or the shift manager, you, if you have any kind of authority, this is for you. And it gives us three very simple instructions. Here's the first one. Do good to them. Do good to them. Verse 9, it says, do the same to them. Now, this does not mean that a master is to obey their, their slave or an empl or employer is to obey their employee. Rather, this is saying that the same kind of integrity and the same kind of dedication that an employee should have, this is the kind of integrity and dedication you should have to those who work for you. I mean, just think about that Deuteronomy passage we looked at where a slave came and worked under your household for six years and they were better off at the end of those six years. This is the kind of mindset that every employer should hold. 
And just, just imagine with me for a moment. Just imagine, right? Imagine if every Christian supervisor and every Christian employer in Longview, Kelsey, in the surrounding area, imagine if everyone who is in charge of others, if they treated their employees this way, if every one of us, we said, I want the person that works for me, I want their life to be better because they work for me. I want to set them up for success because they work for me. Listen, do you realize the kind of reputation Christ would have in our county? Everyone would be clamoring, falling over themselves to work for Christians. Because Christians show them the love of Christ. Do them good. Colossians 1, 4 says this. It says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me ask you, do you treat those who report to you justly and fairly? Are you good to them? Well, the first thing is to do them good. The second command is to do not threaten. The text continues. It says, and, and stop your threatening. To, to stop means to unleash or, or to untether. It's this idea that you, you abandon or you desert. It's, it's like you, you've got your, your life is all wrapped up with threats. And so you treat them. You're always kind of like holding the axe over their head, always threatening them. Well, uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll fire you tomorrow. You better do it right. You better do it better. Stop your threatening. Stop trying to hold things over their head. Yes, there's always a way for correction to happen. Sometimes that has to happen. But this is the attitude you take into that moment. I wasn't always a manager at Albertsons. For a long time, I was that night shift guy that uh, was sometimes found in the back room not doing what I should, right? And I remember at Albertsons, we had these things called cooler talks. They, they weren't very cool. What would happen is I would go in, I'd work my one or two o'clock shift, I'd show up in the afternoon, and my boss, he would say, hey, Mike, uh, I want to talk with you a minute. And he would walk into the cooler. <laughs> and the reason they took us into the cooler is because the fans were running, the doors were closed, and no one could hear him yell at you. It was, it was a miserable, <laughs> miserable day when we had cooler talks. Do you treat your employees like that? Do you belittle them, use foul language, treat them poorly? The text says, if you are in Christ, stop your threatening the final instruction is to, to know that you are accountable. Here's that word knowing again. It says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In the same way that those who serve, those who are employees, they know that they will receive reward for the good they do, even if they have an unjust master. This says that you, if you are the employer, if you are the supervisor, here's what you need to know. You need to know Christ. It says three things about Jesus that stand out in this final part of this verse. The first thing is that, that Jesus is Lord of all. He says, he is their master and yours. You are not Lord of all. You will give an account. You will stand before Christ and you will answer for the way that you have treated those who are under your authority. You are not Lord of all. Christ is Lord of all. Secondly, it says Christ is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. This is the position of authority. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This simply reminds us that, that there is no other authority be above or beyond Christ. 
I mean, this is just like doubling down on Christ as the ultimate authority. And then finally, Jesus is impartial. He's impartial. You, you realize when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there's not a first-class line and the coach line. <laughs> there's not showing up with your resume in your hand saying, you know what, I was a CEO of a company and so I get preferential treatment. We all stand on equal footing. There is no partiality. How will you be evaluated? By your character? By your actions? Your words and your attitude? See, this text, this text that feels so old, 2,000 years ago, talking about slaves and masters, you want to know what this text does? It does for every one of us the same exact thing. It reminds us that our social status, whether we're a boss or whether the employee, that our social status should show our spiritual status. Is that true of you? Do those around you, do they know that you follow Christ by the way you're faithful? the way you're good, by your character. Let me me land with this. Does your faith, does it impact your attitude at work? And, And does your attitude, does it impact your actions? And does all of that, is it like a platform to show the rest of the world that Jesus, that he is Lord, and that he's Savior? Let's pray. God, thank you for this great text Thank you for helping us bridge the gap from the first century to the 21st century. And Lord, I thank you for this room. I thank you for the people here and the way you're working in our lives. Father, I pray for those who find themselves under authority. Lord, I pray that their faith would impact their attitude in such a way that they would be respectful, they would be faithful, that they would be worshipful toward you and they would be humble, that they would be those who obey because they obey you. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that has a position of authority. Father, I pray that they would see that position as given by you. I pray that they would see that that position is given by you as a platform for Christ to be seen clearly as good. Father, I pray that our social status, whatever status we find ourselves in, it would display our spiritual status as those who have been forgiven and made new. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.